0: Well, I want to invite you to turn with me to John chapter 12. We're in John chapter 12 this morning. We have been looking over the course of the last several weeks at entire chapters of John's Gospel. And it is biting off more than we can chew in many respects. So today we're just going to look at a short section, just verses 1 through 11. And it's a beautiful story. One of the great stories in all of the Bible. Because it's a celebration. There's a celebration going on. Mary and Martha and Lazarus and a bunch of their friends have all gathered together for a celebration supper in Jesus' honor. And you'll remember last week, the reason why they would be wanting to honor Jesus is that Jesus came to Lazarus when he was dead as could be, in the tomb, four days. His body was cold. He was dead, and Jesus called to him, Lazarus, come out. And out Lazarus comes, alive and well. And he's living evidence of that. They're there at this celebration supper. And at this supper, where they're all gathered together to celebrate what Jesus has done when he said that he is the resurrection of the life, something amazing happens. Something that just knocked the socks off of everybody there. We see an extravagant devotion and love expressed for Jesus Christ that you will not find anywhere else in the Bible on this level. It is a beautiful story. So let's take a moment to read it now. John chapter 12, verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge over the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. Jesus said, "...leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me." When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Amen. This is God's Word to us this morning, and we pray as always that He would write the truth and the grace of that Word upon all of our hearts. How do you know if you are truly a follower of Jesus? How do you know that? We know that one of the men in this story was not truly a follower of Jesus. Judas. We all know about him. Judas walked with Jesus every day of Jesus' ministry for three years. We're coming upon the cross here. So for three years, Judas had been with Jesus. All of the outward things in his life gave every indication that he was just as legitimate as the other eleven disciples. And yet we see here that every time Judas' name is mentioned, that the Gospel writers cannot divorce the fact that he was the one who betrayed Jesus Christ, who never repented. There's no repentance in him. He betrayed Jesus. So I ask you, many of us have been in the church for all of our lives, but how do you know if you are truly a follower of Jesus Christ? Some of you grew up in a time and a place where you didn't know anybody who didn't professed to be a follower of Christ, who who didn't profess to be a Christian. Very few people you knew of did not go to church. The question was not, are you a Christian or not? It was, what kind of Christian are you? Are you a, a Methodist? Are you a Baptist? Are you a Presbyterian? That was the question. Maybe some of you grew up with a Christianity that told you that it was all about being good and doing the right thing. So it was about avoiding gambling and avoiding drinking and remaining pure in all the spheres of your life and dressing the right way when you went to church, looking and doing the right thing on the outside. Christianity, in many respects, for you perhaps was a bunch of rules. And you reached a point in your Christianity where you agreed with the basic tenets of it in many respects, but all of the joy got robbed out of you because it was a list of do's and don'ts for your life. I want to say something to the kids for a minute here. There was probably something more exciting that you did this week than come here and seeing All Creatures of Our God and King. If I were a betting person, I would bet that you probably did something more exciting than that. In many respects, for you, for all of us as well, there are other things that can grab our souls, that can be more alluring to us than Christianity. When I was a teenager, 14 years old, that's when I came to know Jesus Christ. I was in darkness. I believed that Christianity was a good religion, a lot of good things in it. But it was when I was 14 years old that the scales from my eyes were removed, that Jesus came and had breathed new life into my dead soul. And at that point in my life, Christianity was riveting, it was exciting. I was passionate about it. But then there reached points in my life as I grew older where I learned how to do church and I learned how to say the right Christian things. And so it looked right on the outside, but on the inside there were times where I had to battle that coldness that would creep in. The gospel kind of stuck to me like jello sticks when you nail it to the wall. And so I had to fight against that and I still have to fight against it, and you and I will always have to fight against that temptation for Christianity to become cold throughout the entire course of our lives. And I know that there are some here this morning who have yet to believe. There are people here this morning who have yet to believe the gospel. You were where I was before I came to be a follower of Christ. You respect Christianity. You like a lot of the things that Jesus has to say, but it's not the defining reality of your life. Well, here's the contention I want to bring to you. And it's this. Everyone, and I mean everyone, it doesn't matter who you are, is going to reach a point in your life where Christianity loses its flavor. It's bland tasting to you. it's, It's kind of like broccoli in many respects. I mean, you know that you need it, and it's good for you, but it's not something you really crave. And many of us see Christianity that way. We see Jesus in the same way. And so we take our experience of what so much of our normal Christian life is like and then we read a passage like this where Jesus or, or, or Mary is pouring out the equivalent of thousands upon thousands upon thousands of dollars of ointment all over Jesus. And it seems unreal to us. This, this is a, a perfume that she's poured out on Jesus. Many people would have something of this in them when they got buried. She pours out all this perfume on Jesus, covers his whole body. And people at this particular meal would have almost been pinching themselves. Did this really happen? Did, did I actually just see this woman douse? Jesus, with all of this perfume, I think that's what people must have been thinking. It's probably what you think about real, deep devotion to Jesus because it's foreign to our day-to-day experience. It's, It's not reality to us in many respects. But I want to suggest to you that that is not the way that your Christian life has to be. The normal Christian life does not have to be this bland, dull, boring experience. And I know that might seem like naive preacher speak, but I think that when you look at Mary's life here, and when you look at the book of Acts, and you see how the gospel just completely transforms the entire worldview and the t- entire inner experience of the life of these disciples, their lives are changed. And they're radically sold out for Him. Their, their whole life becomes Jesus blazing at the center of their life and He is the reference point from which they live their lives. I think that the normal Christian experience, when I look at this story and I look at the disciples in the book of Acts, can be an experience where on the outside, in, in terms of what we do with our lives, is giving indication That on the inside, there is a deep, passionate love for Jesus Christ that's standing in awe of His glory and His grace and His truth. That's what Mary is doing here. And if that's not the case, if I'm wrong in that, if this is just a one-hit wonder by Mary, and if Christianity really is supposed to be a ho-hum experience, then Judas was probably right here. He was probably right. It would have been better for Mary to have taken that expensive bottle of perfume that she poured all over Jesus' body and sold it and given the proceeds to the poor. But Jesus accepts this. Jesus accepts this offering, this this perfume baptism that Mary gives to Him. I was on the beach a, a couple of weeks ago just sitting there, enjoying the water, reading a little bit, and this woman walks by, maybe 20 or 30 feet away from me. And I could smell her perfume. I mean, it just hit me like a ton of bricks. Anybody who, who lit a match within 20 or 30 feet of her, the whole Gulf Coast would have gone up in smoke. But she wasn't covered from head to toe in it. Jesus is covered from head to toe in the most precious resource that Mary has to give to Him. That's how beautiful that she sees Jesus. That's how beautiful He is to Him. Why would she do that? If you read a little asterisk or footnote in your Bible, you'll see that the amount here was the equivalent of about a year's wages. So what is that today? The average wage. 40 something thousand dollars per year. This is her savings account. This is her inheritance. This is the most valuable thing that she has, and she pours it out upon Jesus. So what can motivate that? What, What can bring a person to that point in their devotion to Jesus? I want to suggest a couple of things to you. Here's the first one that you need to see. The first thing the first motivating factor behind Mary's offering to Jesus is that she knows on a personal, deep level how profoundly treasured she is by Him. The, the, the fact that Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, That's not just something she learned in Sunday school and learned to say yes and I agree to. That's something that became personally known and experienced by her. This was part of her reality. And, And she knew that despite her failures, despite her inability, despite the actual clear evil that would creep up in her heart and that she would act upon, that Despite all that, Jesus had come to her and had been the resurrection and the life for her. Had brought her new life. Had loved her with a love that would not let her go. Not because of her goodness, but despite the evil that was inside of her. And she knew that. That had become real to her. Her her sin was not just this... Gobbly goop, ambiguous thing. It was specific, and he, she realized that Jesus had come to pay for that, had come to forgive that, had come to give her righteousness, had come to love her and etch her on Jesus' hands and never let him out of his mind. That's real to her, and it penetrated her down to the level of her bone marrow. She was aware, Mary was aware that in the last chapter, just a few days before this dinner, that Jesus had said, I am the resurrection and the life. And she saw Jesus put real force behind those words when he raised her brother from the dead. And that whole experience would have caused Mary to have to face her own death. It would have had to cause her to face her own mortality and the reality of her own soul. Last week we talked about this, right? How death in particular and suffering in general is one of the things that causes us to ask those ultimate questions of life. And Mary has done that. We asked one this morning at the very beginning of our service. What is your only hope in life and in death. Everyone has an answer to that. Everyone does. People who wouldn't set foot in a church ever have an answer to that question. What is your answer? What is your answer? We professed it this morning. It's that I belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He's paid for all of my sins. Not a hair can fall from my head. Everything works for the good of my salvation. That's a... That's a picture of what the gospel is. And so the question that you have to deal with, Christian, or person who is yet to become a follower of Christ, is this, what is your only hope in life and in death? Mary's asked that, that question. She's had to come to terms with that question to one degree or another. And I wonder if you believe what we professed, Because I think that Mary did. It's the gist of what she believed. The, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, she was still about a week out before this happened. So she could not have fully understood the, the depth of what Jesus was actually saying when He said, I'm the resurrection and the life until it actually happened. But she had, saw, she had seen something in the fact that if Jesus, simply by the power of His Word, could raise her brother from the dead who was in the tomb then He could do that for her. He could resurrect her soul and her body one day as well and glorify it. That's that's the love that Jesus pours out to her and it becomes real. And, And if you believe, if you really believe in the same Jesus that Mary believed in, you have the same promises that she had. You have the same love that she experienced from Jesus Christ if He is your only hope in life and in death. Because you have to remember this. You were once a wandering sheep. And Jesus pursued you. You were ready to walk off the cliff. And Jesus came and took you and made you His. You were going to be devoured by the wolves. And you were going to be stolen by the wolves. But He came and rescued you. You were going to experience the victory and the sting of death over your life. But Jesus comes and He stands before you and He takes that on Himself because He will not let His sheep be killed and stealed, stolen and destroyed. That's what He does. And, And He takes that all upon Himself. Everything that you deserved. And in exchange, He gives you life and He gives it to you abundantly. He gives you forgiveness. He gives you liberation, freedom from the power of sin to condemn you. All that He received on that cross, you deserved. And all that He deserved for being the perfectly righteous Son of God in whom there was no sin, you receive. And you receive that because of what Jesus has done for you. That is what the deep, deep love of Jesus that we sing about, that we profess, that we say that we believe, is all about. And Mary experienced that at the level of her soul. That was real to her and it made her glad. When when Mary takes the most precious thing that she owns and she pours it out on Jesus, I don't get the sense that she was thinking okay, this is going to be a tough sacrifice, but here it goes. I don't get that in this story. What I get from her is she was glad to pour it out upon Jesus. She was glad to give over the most valuable resource that she had to Jesus Christ because Jesus had come and made her glad and set her free and given her His love. When you know Jesus' love for you, when you really know it, and it becomes real in your life, you think much more of Him. And you care much more about making Him look glorious than you do about improving your quality of life. And about bringing yourself comfort and caring about what everybody else thinks about you. You care about treasuring Jesus because you know that your security and confidence rests in what He has done for you and the fact that He has given you a love that will not let you go. That's the promise that you have. But as beautiful as all that is, and as deeply moved and understanding of that that Mary is, I think that is a subset of a bigger issue of a bigger thing that Mary has started to zero in on. Because if you love somebody simply because they love you back, that's just self-absorption. That's being in a relationship for what you can get out of it. And that's not the way that Mary sees Jesus here. Mary sees Jesus as something beyond that. When, When you love a person simply because of who they are. Apart from any way in which you stand to benefit from it, that's what genuine, deep, true love is. And that is how Mary sees Jesus here. Mary definitely stood to benefit from Jesus. There's no doubt about that. But I think she's looking at something beyond what's in it for her. And I think it all goes back to chapter 1. It all goes back to chapter 1, what we saw at the very beginning of this, where we see that Jesus the Son of God who who always dwelled in face-to-face unity with His Father comes and takes on human flesh and dwells among us, born in a stinky, wretched cattle stall. And He dwells among us and He enters into the context of our life and enters into the context of our pain and enters into the context of our experience. He takes on flesh and dwells among us and in that we see His glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. That's how Mary sees Jesus. So apart from any direct benefit that she stands to gain from Jesus Christ, she sees Him as glorious, as full of grace and truth in and of Himself. And that rivets her soul. It drives her to pour out her whole life to Him. How does that happen? What does it look like? And how does it happen? Think of it this way. Why would so many people every year go to the middle of nowhere Arizona to look at a big hole in the ground? Why would they do that? Why would 5 million people from all over the world take their time, their vacation time, their money, and travel to literally the middle of nowhere to stand at the cusp of the Grand Canyon, to look at this ginormous hole in the ground. Why would they do that? Because it's the Grand Canyon. It's grand. You you stand there and you look at it and it just takes your breath away. You're, You're in absolute awe. You realize how small you actually are. Not that you're an insignificant, worthless person, but you realize that there's something just much greater than you out there. And and you don't stand necessarily to personally benefit because the the Grand Canyon relationally loves you back. You, You look at it and you just stand in awe of how glorious it actually is, despite what you have to personally gain from that. That's a created thing. The Grandkid, it's a created thing. What about the creator of that thing? That's how Mary has begun to see Jesus Christ. That's how, that's how she sees him. That's why Jesus is glorious to him because, to her, because she sees him as the one who is awash in creativity. He not only created this world, created beautiful, awesome things such as the Grand Canyon, but He sustains it by the power of His Word. He's the one who is personal, who, as I said, took on flesh and dwelt among us, who loved us despite our rebellion and indifference to Him. In a world where Injustice seems to flourish. He is the epitome of perfect justice. The justice that that stands in our place, in our place condemned He stood to give us His grace and His righteousness and reconcile us. That's perfect justice. He gives us perfect security by promising us in His Word that nothing will be able to snatch us out out of His hand. And things are trying to snatch you out of his hand all the time. The pressures you have at work, the relationship with your children, the relationship with your parents, all of those things are seeking to undermine our identity in Christ. But Jesus will not let us be snatched out of his hand. And so Mary sees this and it becomes real to her. It rivets her soul. And Jesus begins to blaze brightly, brightly at the center of her life. So how does that specifically look? What are the specifics and the ways in which that looks? First thing is that for Mary and for people who have Jesus inflaming their lives, he becomes more delightful, more pleasurable, more treasured by you than anyone or anything else in the universe what Jesus becomes. I, I, I don't get the sense that there was a reluctance, a moral obligation, a, a feeling of, of just burdensome duty that Mary was pouring out here. No, she treasured Jesus. He was the delight of her soul. And so she gave of herself willingly. When you give of yourself willingly to someone, it brings you pleasure. It's not a burden. And that's how it was for Mary here when she saw Jesus. But here's the second thing. The second thing is that when Jesus blazes at the center of your life, you extravagantly, and I mean extravagantly, give over every sphere of your life to Him. There is no inch of your life that is not governed by Jesus, where He is not king over it. Mary pours the perfume out on Jesus' feet and then wipes it with her hair. Feet are gross. They're just gross. And this is a day before good shoes and and pavement, and, and when the mode of transportation were animals. So think about the things that you step on every day. Think about the things that they would have stepped on every day. When a person came home, their servants cleaned their feet. But if you were a Jewish servant, you didn't even have to do that. That was left for the Gentile servants. But, but Mary comes in and cleans Jesus' nasty, stinky, wretched feet. And she takes her hair down. That was provocative in this culture. You just didn't do that. You did not take your hair down in public places where people other than your husband or children would ever see that. There were other people unrelated to Mary here. She takes her hair down. Can you picture this? Wiping the feet of Jesus with her with her locks, with her hair. How how much love must she have had for Jesus in that midst? It, it seems to be something that she does spontaneously. She she gives over herself liberally to him because she's been ravished by him. Mary is communicating here something that you and I really deeply need to see, and that I need to see, and it's it's that she's going to serve Jesus in every imaginable way without condition. And, when, and without worrying what everybody else thinks about it. Everybody thought she was nuts, completely. And she doesn't care about that. This is difficult for me. I'll tell you why it's difficult for me. Because in my cultural background and in my life experience, the, the easiest thing for me to buy into is the moderation in-everything mentality. You can sing, but don't sing too loudly. You can love Jesus, but don't let him consume you. You can have strong convictions about the gospel and about the Christian faith, but don't let that be the chief pursuit of your life. Because everything in moderation. I think that's one of the reasons why Christianity gets stale. Why it gets stale to me and why it might get stale to you? Because we've grown satisfied with having just a little touch of Christianity to kind of fill out the contours of our life, rather than having it ravish our souls. When it comes to Christianity, my friends, moderation in everything doesn't work. It doesn't work. You know what a moderate Christian is? It's someone with a spine that's made out of linguine. It's someone who, who doesn't have deep convictions about who Jesus is, about what he's all about. It's someone who doesn't really see the gravity of sin and the ugliness of that and then in exchange see the depth of the great love that Jesus gives to his people in the gospel. That's what a moderate doesn't understand. And see, Mary is showing us something that the normal Christian life is different than that. The normal Christian life is an extravagant outpouring to Jesus Christ. So she sings our closing hymn that we're going to sing today, Take My Life and Let It Be, and that's her song. That's her theme song for life. She's not saying, Jesus, I will give over my life to you as long as it's not too costly, as long as it doesn't encroach on my comfort." as long as it doesn't disturb my financial plans, as long as it doesn't cause me to have to open my house or my life to someone that might make me feel uncomfortable. That's not how she's doing it here. But it's so easy for me to do that, and it's so easy for you to do that. So I ask you, what are, what are some of the areas of your life that you just don't want Jesus to touch? You have areas of your life and if you're going to be honest, you do not want Jesus to touch those areas. You would rather remain king over those. For, for me, I'll, t- I'll just spell it out. For me, in many respects, it's financial security. I, I, I am going to want to hoard because there's something about financial security that I build an identity off of. There's something about me that says... We, Rebecca and I would struggle to want to babysit for someone who hasn't gone out on a date in months because it encroaches on the plans for my life that I have set out for myself. Anything that disrupts comfort. But Mary's not like that. She's saying all of it's yours. My time, my money, my energy, my talents, my skills. All of it is yours. And there's no obstructions to her service here. And it's because, first of all, she sees Jesus in his glory and his grace and his truth. And secondly, she understands the deep, deep love that Jesus has given to her in the gospel. Here's my challenge to you. Don't let something as superficial as politics or the stock market or shopping, or SEC football, or anything like that. Be the the chief thing in your life that moves your soul. Don't settle for something like that to be the, the chief desire of your life. Be still for a minute. Be quiet. Come to God and beg Him to make Himself known to you. Beg Him to make you see His glory and His grace and His love. And do it together with his people. That's why we gather together as men on Saturday mornings and why the women gather on Thursday nights and why we have our Wednesday night redeeming marriage thing and why we encourage you to get together because we grow best together. We need each other. Look, Mississippi State football would not grab your soul so much if you were the only one in the stadium watching it. It may not grab your soul very much if the whole stadium was full, but that's, a, that's beside the point either way. The, the, the point is that you're more likely to enjoy something or someone when you enjoy it together. And that's what Jesus has called the church to be, to delight yourself in him. That's what real, normal Christianity looks like. The, the road to nominal, diluted, boring Christianity that takes comfort in being a genetic Presbyterian is not what Mary's all about here. But it's what Judas is all about. Judas has taken deep comfort in his position and he started to get a little aggravated by Jesus. Jesus has gotten under his skin. He shows that he's not truly a follower of Christ. Jesus interfered with his comfort, with his lust, his quest for money. And I doubt that Judas woke up one day and said, I think I'll just betray Jesus today. No, that's not how it works. The The, the road to betrayal comes with a thousand little tiny capitulations. And that's where Judas is here. A little bitterness, a little lust for money, a little lust for power and respect a little self-deception. Judas was full of all of that nonsense. He was full of all of that. He did not care about the poor. He could have cared less about the poor. He couldn't see anything of who Jesus was because he was navel-gazing upon himself. Here's the last thing, and then I'll be done about this. Christianity has always been deeply concerned for the poor. Judas appears to be. But Jesus always was. And his comment seems a little callous here. But I don't need to defend how much Jesus cares about the poor. And when Christians look at the single mother in the projects, or the immigrant farm worker, or the homeless vet with contempt and scorn and bitterness, it shows that they either don't understand the gospel as they should, or they don't understand it at all. And the reason why is this is because Jesus came for poor people. And He came for poor people exclusively. He came for people to do for them what they could not do for themselves. And it's until you see yourself as being far more impoverished than the woman in the projects or the homeless guy on the street that you will begin to understand the gospel. You have got to see that you are far more impoverished than than what you see in the physical world around you because Jesus has come to you and He has done for you what you could not do for yourself. He says, apart from Me, you can do nothing. You were poor. You were dead. You were hopeless. Your eternal destiny was to be devoured by the wolves, but I have come to give you life and give it to you abundantly. You were the poor person that I came to have mercy upon. I have liberated your soul and I have given you the riches of my glory. And the inheritance that I have to give you is yours and it can never perish or spoil or fade. See yourself like that. See Jesus like that. And when you see him like that, that's what what will cause you to die to yourself. To live for God. And to find that doing so is the most riveting, enjoyable, delightful thing you could ever do with your life. Take that with you as you go. Let's pray. Father, we look at this act of devotion and it seems beyond us. And we know that Mary still struggled with sin, she never reached perfection, and there were days where you became cold to her. But I doubt she ever lost sight of that experience of you seeing her her raise your brother from the dead and of hearing the promises and knowing that the promises are hers that you laid out in the Gospel. The same promises and the same hope that Mary had is what each one of us who has stopped trusting in ourselves and has begun to trust in you, has as well. So bring us to a fuller knowledge of that and experience of it. Do it for our good. Do it so that you will spur us on to make you look glorious in a world that seems so dark. Do it for the sake of those who have yet to come to know you. We pray it in Jesus' name and for His sake. Amen.